It's Monday, November 2nd. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Final push before Election Day, and President Trump is still looking to big rallies to turn out his base, while Joe Biden leads the national polls. Over 93 million people have already voted early, and the focus is going to be on the state's ability to count millions of mail-in ballots in quick enough fashion to get a result. Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News, joins us for what to look out for as election night approaches. Next, still getting tons of emails and texts with calls to vote from people and organizations you don't know anything about. There's a whole voter data economy where candidates, parties, and nonprofits collect, buy, and use a ton of information to target you. Jeffrey Fowler, tech columnist at the Washington Post, tells us how they get all of your information. Finally, one of the numbers that public health experts have not been able to get a handle on is exactly how many people have recovered from COVID-19. There's no agreed-upon standard definition for a coronavirus recovery, so each state counts it a different way, and some states don't even track the number at all. Sarah Toy, health and science reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for how many people we think have recovered and why experts think that number is way off. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. I think it's highly likely you're not going to have a decision because Pennsylvania is very big. And as you know, there were there was another state, but perhaps other states involved. This is a terrible thing that they've done to our country. Joining us now is Ginger Gibson, deputy Washington digital editor at NBC News. Thanks for joining us, Ginger. Thanks for having me. All right. Final push to the election. President Trump is continuing to hold big rallies on Sunday. He did five rallies in five states. Today on Monday, he's doing seven more rallies. So he's really betting big on these uh, on these rallies to help turn out his base. We have made it to the finish line almost. Uh, Tuesday is Election Day. And President Trump, who is dealing with the fact that he's being vastly outspent by the Democrat Joe Biden on television ads, has been trying to make up for it by holding ra- as many rallies as he possibly can. Joe Biden's not quite moving at the same pace. Uh, as I said, they've got way more television ads and surrogates sort of fanned out everywhere across the country. Yeah. And Joe Biden is, uh, you know, is focusing on uh, states like uh, Georgia really needs to turn out the the black vote there. President Obama is campaigning for him, I think, uh, in Georgia as well. So that's really where their focus is at. That's right. Georgia, but also the lake states. So Wisconsin, Michigan, even Minnesota, where he's expected to win. Joe Biden is. Those are sort of the the final pushes uh, looking at Michigan, places like that where President Trump won in 2016. But Democrats are hopeful they can turn them back this year. Georgia is sort of a, a best case scenario for Joe Biden. If he were to win Georgia, I think we would probably see a landslide on Tuesday night, a state that has quite historically been Republican. Let's talk a little bit about voting and what the polls are saying. Over 93 million people have voted already early, most of the uh, mail-in ballots. That number changes all the time. Uh, and some latest polls, the, the latest NBC News Wall Street Journal poll says that nationally, Joe Biden leads by about 10 percent, 52 to 42. But that's nationally there. The, you know, once you drill down in the state polls, it gets a little tighter. 
That's right. So we don't hold a national election, as everyone knows. So right. you can win the national vote by uh, as many points as you want, but you have to win enough states. And we are still seeing state polling that shows um, Joe Biden ahead, especially in the places he needs to be. And we're looking, everyone's trying to read the tea leaves on early voting, which is a really difficult thing to do. But <laughs> right. Texas, more ballots have been cast in Texas via early voting, uh, which concluded on Friday than were cast in all of 2016. And this is largely being driven by very blue counties, places like Harris County, Fort Bend County, outside of the area that includes Houston. So people are trying to look at the tea leaves there. But we are seeing that in polls, when we ask people if they voted yet, Democrats are more likely to have voted already. And we are seeing this advantage for Joe Biden. If the polls are right, and everyone always sort of has been fretting about whether or not the polls are right, but if the polls are right, Joe Biden is looking at having a really big night on Tuesday night. Let's get to actual election night and the coverage that we're going to be seeing. A lot of people are saying get ready for the legal battles, especially in states like Pennsylvania, Michigan and Wisconsin, where they can't start voting until I believe 7 a.m. on Election Day. You know, other states can already start tallying them. They won't obviously, you know, release any of that stuff. But they, they start on Election Day and they have millions and millions of mail-in ballots to go through. You're right. There's going to be some expected delay in states where they can't start counting right away or they can't have already started processing some of these ballots. So it's a multi-step process. You don't just open the envelope and count the ballot. You have to make sure that it's come from someone who's allowed to vote. That process takes a little time. Uh, But we know places like Florida and Arizona have already been processing their ballots. We expect them to have many of them done or almost all of them done by Tuesday night when they start tallying those votes that are cast in person. Places like Pennsylvania could take a little bit longer. Wisconsin could take a little bit longer. Michigan, I think, started processing their ballots or will start processing their ballots a couple of days out. So we're, we're going to see a variations. Now, like I said, if the polls are right, we're talking about a big night for Joe Biden. Yeah. Um, and that means that we might not have to wait for all of those ballots to get counted before my coworkers uh, here at NBC start saying, you know, it's clear who's won. Yeah. Uh, so it, just because of that doesn't mean we won't know exactly and, on, on election day. And that exactly was my next question. There's a different pathways to victory, as they, you know, they always call it. So for Joe Biden, there's multiple paths. For uh, President Trump, they're a little narrower if, if we're believing what the polls and all that say. So. It's not necessarily that we need those states to make the determination, but uh, they could be a big part of it. Uh, you know, other big states that they're looking at are Florida, Georgia, North Carolina. So it, it all depends on the pathway that, that we're trying to go through. That's right. If Pennsylvania is the state someone needs to be elected president, could be a little while before we know. Uh, but if if your listeners are, are wanting to get some hints early on, I mean, Florida, I mean, Florida is an important state. Donald Trump absolutely needs Florida. If he wins Florida, that doesn't mean he's reelected. But if Joe Biden wins Florida, that's probably it. You can go to bed early. We know who's won. <laughs> what else should we be looking out for? I've been hearing rumblings, uh, you know, people just worried about, you know, protests, violence, things, uh, uh, you know, if people aren't happy with the outcome. Downtown D.C. is uh, the city of plywood right now. It looks like a hurricane is about to hit the city, but that's really just the fear people have, that there will be protests, that there will be property destruction, that people will riot in some of the cities if they don't like the outcome. But it's impossible to know. Uh, we don't know what people are going to do. We, we don't know what the outcome is going to be. We don't know if the outcome makes people more or less inclined uh, to protest. People who 
had property destruction during uh, riots over the summer, during protests that, that turned violent. And I think they're going to be trying to preemptively prepare for those. Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. When America's heard. I believe the message is going to be loud and clear. It's time for Donald Trump to pack his bags and go home. It's time to breathe some life back into this nation. Joining us now is Jeffrey Fowler, tech columnist at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Jeffrey. You bet. No doubt that you have seen an increase in political ads targeted your way, whether it's on email, on your Facebook for me, I'm getting inundated with text messages telling me mm-hmm. to vote, telling me to vote for this proposition, all sorts of different things. Like I said, that's the one for me that's been getting me. But you wrote an article, you dug into how politicians are targeting us. And in some cases, they have over 3,000 data points on every voter, whether it's your phone number, party affiliation, income. I mean, it gets down to very granular levels. So, Jeff, give us an overview of what you were looking into on this. Sure. It turns out that there is a pretty giant voter data economy out there that candidates and issues and uh, political parties and nonprofits can all tap into and spend money to collect or buy a ton of information about you. And then they use this information to send us those text messages to uh, micro target us with ads on Facebook and elsewhere and to plot out their campaigns. And none of it is very transparent to us as citizens. So what I did as kind of a project is there's a new privacy law in the state of California called the CCPA. And I used it to force at least some of the players in this voter data economy to pony up, show me what data they had about me. And they legally had no choice to do it. So I have been over the last couple of weeks collecting troves and troves of data that these companies have about me and then sell on to all of those organizations. So you came up with five major sources of personal data that really is fueling this machine. First off is a state voter profile. So whenever you register to vote and everything, you're giving up a lot of information there. You're giving up some information. I wouldn't call it a lot. Look, people might recognize that when you register to vote, you have to obviously give them your address, your name. In some states, you can also give them your phone number or email address. And for a long time, actually, campaigns and candidates have been able to get special access to that file. That's how for decades, you know, they figured out like which doors to knock on and, you know, how to how to sort of plot out even polls that they might want to do. But that is just the beginning, right? So that's just a little bit of information. But in recent years, campaigns have really started adding to that file a lot more information that they get from commercial sources, which kind of takes us on to the second big source, and that's commercial voter files. So now there are these companies that are taking all those records from the states and they're adding to it information from data brokers and from magazine subscriptions and from all those companies that are in the business of tracking what we do on the Internet. And to that, they get these, in some cases, really large files of information about every single voter in the U.S. This is what I use that California law to get a closer look at with, with a couple of these different companies. And this one uh, really starts throwing a lot of information out there. I, I, I kind of chuckled when you mentioned your article. They labeled you as a home decor enthusiast. But beyond that, they were starting to get a lot of information wrong that you were noticing. So, look, they had a lot of different, you know, hundreds and hundreds and or actually even thousands of different data fields on me. So some of it was predictable. You know, it was like 
you know, my credit score, my income, their inferences about my politics uh, or my hobbies. And then some of them were weird. Some of the categories were things like home decor enthusiasts. One of these companies had marked me as that. And then, as you mentioned, I noticed in some cases the information was incorrect. Uh, they, for example, got wrong in several cases uh, whether or not I had children and what my religion was. And when it's just a commercial data source, you know, it's just being used to sort of pigeonhole us for what kinds of cars we're going to get ads for. Maybe it doesn't really matter. But it starts to look different when you think about this in the political realm. Candidates are using this information to try to sway us. And if they don't have the correct information about us, what impact does that have on our democracy? So you start to get kind of a little bit uneasy the deeper you look. And the last big one, an old friend, Facebook. Facebook always has a ton of data on us. And how do they figure into all of this? Facebook doesn't sell or hand our data over directly to campaigns or candidates. What they do is actually something that's much more valuable. Like the RNC has 3,000 data points on every American voter. Facebook has way more than that. And they allow campaigns and candidates and, and committees to target us with ads using that information. So they don't have to hand it over. All a campaign has to do is say, hey, I want to reach some potential voters who kind of fit the following kind of criteria or maybe match this pre-existing list of voters. And Facebook does it all behind the scenes and makes it very easy to do. Now, the thing about this, that sounds super convenient. And of course, campaigns are spending more money than ever on Facebook ads, like almost twice as much as Trump and Clinton have spent in 2016 already. But this is also, everybody now agrees, kind of possibly dangerous. Even Facebook now has put a pause on allowing new micro-targeted political ads on their site until Election Day because they realize this could really be misused. And Twitter has not allowed this at all this year. And Google even said no more micro-targeting of political ads. So we're really sort of coming to terms with how this technology and all this data they have about us could be used um, to make democracy worse. Jeffrey Fowler, tech columnist at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. You bet. What you might not know is that there is a category called recovered cases. And basically, it's there, but a lot of the public health experts that we spoke to and public health officials said it's just something that they ignore because it is so confusing and it tells them so little, essentially. Joining us now is Sarah Toy, health and science reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Sarah. Thanks for having me. We're always collecting data throughout this pandemic to try to learn more about COVID-19 and how to respond to it so our public health agencies can respond to this. One of the interesting things that you wrote about is how many people have recovered from COVID-19? And the answer is nobody really knows. I guess the conventional wisdom is you get it, you get better, you're recovered from it. But when it comes to these official tallies, again, as we've been going throughout this pandemic with many other of these numbers, every state counts it differently or has different classifiers to count it differently. And really, the result is that nobody knows exactly how many people have recovered from this, especially when it comes to people that are like these long haulers who experience symptoms for months sometimes. So it all gets very confusing. So, Sarah, try to help us navigate this question of how many people have recovered from COVID-19. Honestly, I wish I could help more. But, you know, you're right in saying that it is a very confusing question. So, I mean, if you look at any of the popular COVID-19 trackers like the Hopkins dashboard or the COVID tracking project, you know, you'll see that they report metrics like death, hospitalization, uh, number of cases. 
things that you know you and I might hear on a day-to-day basis when you're watching the news or reading a newspaper. What you might not know is that there is a category called recovered cases. And basically, it's there, but a lot of the public health experts that we spoke to and public health officials said it's just something that they ignore because it is so confusing and it tells them so little, essentially. So first of all, you know, there are a couple of problems. First off, there's no standard definition for recovery. So like you said, states report it differently. Some states don't report it at all. And secondly, like you also said, when you think about recovery, we think about someone who's been sick. But as since return to baseline feels all better, you and I know that that's not the case for a lot of COVID-19 patients. They are feeling terrible weeks or months after getting COVID-19. And so that kind of all makes the concept of recovery really hard to pin down and tracking it just really, really hard. So let's talk a little bit about how states do classify a recovery, how they do define it. And as we mentioned, a lot of states do it a different way. And in your article, you mentioned Michigan and Texas as some differing ways to classify it. So, for instance, Michigan defines recovered cases as the number of people who got a confirmed COVID-19 diagnosis who are alive 30 days after symptoms. So for Texas, basically they estimate recoveries. They use this very complex formula. It subtracts out deaths, other things. It assumes it takes 32 days for people to recover who have been in the hospital and then 14 days for people who weren't in the hospital. You know, those are two very different definitions. And then there are places like Florida and California that don't track them at all saying that, you know, it's too complex and what we have right now doesn't really capture recovery. The COVID tracking project takes every state's tallies if they report them and they add them together to get this sort of national number. But of course, it's missing the states that don't report them. And for the states that do, it's all different how they track recovery. And why would this number be important? Obviously, it helps us gauge the progress that we're going through, right? You know, people are getting sick, but they're also recovering. And, you know, that's also a point that we miss, especially when we talk about in the media. You know, you just keep seeing that number constantly rise of cases. But there are people who are getting better from this. So there's that part of it. But why would it help public health officials to really know how many people are recovering? When we spoke to public health officials, they sort of thought what we have right now isn't super helpful. but Knowing the course of recovery and just kind of figuring out how long it takes for people to recover and how many people are recovered in this city versus another, it could be helpful in kind of guiding clinical guidelines. It could be helpful in public health messaging and figuring out where to allocate resources. So it is something that could be helpful if we found a good way to track it. And a lot of those same experts were calling for some type of national strategy, I guess, at least some standardized way to count them. That way we can all get on track. I mean, it's the same thing that we went through when trying to track the number of deaths from COVID-19. Every state does it differently too. And we get all these different types of numbers. One of the people I talked to, Dr. Oscar Allen, who's chief of programs and services at the National Association of County and City Health Officials, he basically said without a standard definition for COVID-19 recovery, there isn't a way to compare data between counties or cities You can't really tell people living in these places are recovering. That would be really useful if we could have it, but it's really hard to get given how many people are sick and it would just be really difficult to track over time. And we understand that. Sarah Toy, health and science reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, of course. Thank you. 
That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod in both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.